1: Independent Melbourne Radio 3R.
0: On today's show, in 2015, Amani Haddad is a young lawyer pregnant with her first child when her mother, Selwa, is killed by her husband of 28 years, Amani's father. Nine years earlier, her grandmother had been killed in Lebanon by an Israeli drone attack. These devastating events and the women she lost are at the heart of Amani's powerful and confronting memoir, The Mother Wound. In it, Amani, an artist and domestic violence advocate, pays homage to her mother and grandmother and reveals how her loss was compounded by islamophobia, misogyny, divisions in her extended family, and a legal system still ill-equipped to deal with the enormity of domestic violence while still somehow finding solace in her strong beliefs and activism. Amani Haddar joins me soon to discuss her book, Her Story. But I'd like to give a content warning. This episode will be discussing family violence and the aftermath of murder and traumatic loss. If you or someone you know are affected by any of the issues we cover in this interview, please contact 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732, 732 safe Steps on 1-800-015-188, the Men's Referral Service one 300 766 491 or Lifeline on 131114. And I'll be repeating those numbers throughout uh, this show. Triple R on FM Digital Online via the app. I read somewhere that if trauma can be inherited, then so can strength, resilience, and joy. From both mum and Teta, I learned that resilience is not a thing you are born with, but something you do. I think perhaps both are true. From my mum, I inherited the courage to speak, the desire to follow things through. I learned to assert myself and take up space, even in a world that is hostile toward women who do these things. That's an extract from advocate and artist Amani Haidar's powerful and confronting memoir, The Mother Wound. Amani Haidar joins me now to discuss her book and her story. Amani, welcome to Backstory.
1: Thank you, and thank you so much for that very generous introduction.
0: Look, I do want to um, give you the opportunity to sort of really introduce this book in your own words. It is your story, and it's an incredibly important one, um, and one that we should all really be listening to.
1: Yeah, so this book is a culmination of um, the experiences of trauma and grief and violence that you already mentioned. And it's also a collection of my own reflections and the things that I've learned through um, having experienced violence, having uh, witnessed the responses of the legal system and having had to go through quite a long and grueling and incomplete and um, at times painful healing process in order to recover from those experiences to the extent possible and be able to contribute and advocate for change and tell those stories so that I'm honouring both my mum and my grandmother through this work and through this storytelling.
0: I do want to really, you know, talk about what it is like to put together a book that's based on such incredibly, you know, traumatic material from your own life, obviously, you have had to really dig into not just your memories of these events, uh, but of you know of the kind of things that uh, that go around it. Society's um, propping up of the kind of misogyny and patriarchal systems that allow it to happen. The the trauma you go through in the, the court case itself, all of these things, um, even taken piece by piece, are themselves very powerful documents. How do you set out to even start to accumulate the material to write a book like this? And do you feel like, you know, this is now published, I think, around six or so years after the events, that, that time is enough for you to be able to get that perspective
1: Um, I don't think time is enough. I've had the privilege of being able to access initially um, appropriate services and responses that allowed me to begin recovering and beginning learning how to cope with my trauma in a way that would set me on a path to eventually be able to write and make art about it. So I think before even getting to a stage where you're developing your craft or you're thinking about collating this material, it's really important to have been given the opportunity to process some of the information that and some of the events that you've witnessed in order to be able to articulate those experiences in a way that is uh, meaningful and empowering. So for me, it was a matter of uh, journaling in the really, really early days, um, writing my reflections after my counselling appointments, documenting what I was doing each day, uh, keeping a record of things that were happening, keeping a record of material that I had seen online and waiting until I was ready to revisit it all in order to sit down and uh, compile it and write it and know how to manage the way that that could be triggering as well. Um, That was all really... Really essential you know essential parts of that process
0: yeah I'm wondering if going through this material had its own sense of catharsis as well it
1: did in some ways so there was moments where I did feel a real sense of healing and closure in the writing process and one of those examples is where I talk about coming across um, a radio interview that my mum did when she lost her mum and feeling these parallels between my life and hers and feeling a really strong sense of connection with her and the struggle that she was facing at that time and the grief that she was experiencing. Some of those moments were really filled with um, a real sense of revelation and a sense of purpose. Um, There were some parts, however, that were incredibly triggering and did force me to confront Um, thoughts or memories or issues that I'd really avoided for a long time and I ordered the transcripts of the court proceedings from my dad's trial for example and was reading those in the last Sydney lockdown last year and that was very difficult because there was no real getting away from it and it did demand a certain um, level of focus um, to be able to get through that and not give up on that process which was quite uh, triggering and confronting.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things throughout this book as well is that you've really spent the time to bring your mother and your grandmother to life in these pages and I think this is one of those extraordinary opportunities for people, you know, who maybe read a headline or the awful statistics to actually really get to know the person uh, who has been so devastated by these crimes Um, I I really want you to talk a bit about how you've kind of managed to honour your the women in your life that have mattered so much to you particularly your mother because I really did feel like she was such a vivid character in your portrayals and that you have given us a sense of what it is that that you've lost what the world's lost
1: Yeah, it was really important to me to bring those characters to life. And I think the reason it felt so urgent and so crucial was because the systems that we'd gone through and the legal response to my father's trial and the investigations that took place after my grandmother's death didn't seem to really capture the individual. It didn't capture the nuances of their experiences. It didn't capture who they were. And I think that's a very common experience with people who've been victimised by crime, Um, so much is outside of their control and so much of what happens afterwards is really about the offender and not about the victim. So initially, my, my desire was to capture the lives that these people led and build them up as three-dimensional women that other people could get to know because headlines and reporting and media and even popular culture um, really flatten what victims are and how much agency they exercise and how powerful they really can be.
0: One thing I was really thinking along those lines when I was reading this book and I um, you know, there's a uh, this kind of uh, idea that when we see things that are happening in other places that we're not familiar with, we don't have as much empathy for uh, those people in those places or if there's, it's out of our frame of experience. And I think part of the issue around that is not seeing what things are like when they're, you know, normal or not seeing what things are like um before the awful events happened. And I was thinking so much about that in terms of this book because you also very, um, you know, movingly outline visiting Lebanon, seeing your grandmother, seeing where she lives, your memories of that place, already obviously um, occupied and and subject to war, uh, but still having this sense of the place when finally you get this absolute devastation of, of losing uh, your grandmother due to, um, you know, war, due to this drone attack. You you really feel that loss more powerfully because you have shown these things. Do you, I mean, I really feel like this book um, and this is one of the really essential things that I guess books can do, offers an opportunity for people to really experience what it is that, you know, others feel or, or know or have Do you feel as though this is, you know, part of the motivation for for writing a book like this is to show not just the after but the before?
1: Yes. I think one of the most powerful things about storytelling and about fleshing out those experiences in your own voice is to be able to build that empathy with an audience who might not have... um, Um, experience the same things, might not have, um, you know, we live in quite a privileged and safe society, a lot of us, and we haven't turned our minds probably to the, the experiences of people outside of that. And for me, that that meant that when my, when I lost my grandmother, I felt incredibly isolated and incredibly sad and not sure who to express that to, who to share that with, and whether there were any safe spaces in my environment that would allow me to talk about the grief that I associated with that war and with that loss um, in a way that was, um, again, empowering and empathetic. So I, I wanted to... Um, introduce readers to this world that I had gotten to know when I visited my grandmother and what she represented to me. And that was a sense of hope and a sense of unconditional love and affection and also a sense of belonging to a place when at, when at that exact time in Australia, uh, my sense of belonging as a Lebanese um, young person was constantly being questioned. So I think it was important for me to have that experience of getting to know her and I came back um, emboldened by that experience and feeling really reassured that I did have a place in the world. But then that was very quickly sort of torn away um, by the war that happened six months later and by the grief that that caused. And I think that really demonstrates an experience that's quite common. A lot of um, migrant families have that sense of detachment from from the place that they feel that they belong to or the place that they feel um, a sense of unconditional love. And um, I think it was that experience that I really wanted to draw out because it is more common than we think for people who live here to have loved ones overseas. And we're just watching the news at the moment unfold in Afghanistan and how the, dia- the Afghan diaspora, is feeling that um, and worrying about loved ones and how um, at the same time uh, the identity of being a person of color in um, the West is has been vilified for so long in a way that makes people reluctant to uh, speak out about their experiences and share them um, lest they be misunderstood as being ungrateful for the opportunities that they have and things like that so for me it was really important to show that from the perspective of me as a 17 year old going through those emotions um, in that context
0: and these are issues that you know throughout the book obviously percolate up throughout these truly extraordinary times that you have to live through with um following your mother's murder you are not only sitting in a situation where you have to confront you know the horror of family violence um you know, confronting who your father is, what has happened. But compounding all of that is this societal notion about who you are, what your grief is, why this has happened to your family. Can you speak about that?
1: Yeah, I think having experienced the post 9-11 world and the way that that affected stereotypes about my community, about what it means to be Arab or Muslim, um, I was very conscious in the aftermath of losing my mum and in the process of going through the trial itself of how the white gaze might read my mother's story and how aspects of her experience would be understood as a Muslim problem rather than a gender problem. And the fact that a lot of the nuances and complexities of her life and her relationship to spirituality and faith and cultural identity um, were being glossed over or misunderstood or misinterpreted um, in the public, um, including in the media and in the judgment. And I really went back to the judgment in my writing process and read through those sections and tried to process what was it about these words or these this particular framing that didn't sit well with me? What was it that was missed about my mum's life? What were her um, real experiences and how was she, like all of us, um, a person with inconsistencies and with a relationship that was in a state of flux in terms of her relationship and her culture and her identity as well because people are not static. And I really wanted to, to bring that out a little bit because it does challenge a lot of those stereotypes that flared up immediately after the murder and a lot of the comments that I saw in the you know Facebook comment sections and um, just that awareness of, of how uh, rife racism can be in our environment.
0: You even at one point in the book, talk about coming out of the uh, the court uh where you are obviously you know a witness but also uh Observing what's going on and how your father is responding, how the legal system is working and you come out of the courtroom and you're um, approached by someone from the media, by a journalist who wants to talk to you about the case um, and mentions that they may have spoken with extended family members on your father's side and you say to them, what are you going to do about the Islamophobia? And in your reflection, you you, you reflect that in fact, this particular outlet has been part of the problem with what um, with these stereotypes, with this this culture that has led to people being reduced to a, a you know a series of of untrue and unfair characterizations, and compounding the experience that you're having. Can you can you talk about that? Because that was a moment where you're sort of you know that that person doesn't come out as much as a character, but you really do get that the fullness of the of the impact, not only on what you're going through, but on how it's being covered.
1: Yeah. I think one of the main frustrations that I had was witnessing the way that um, things were playing out and sensing a real frustration about having almost no voice or having a marginalised voice in the proceedings, having a marginalised voice in terms of sharing my mum's story. I really had wanted, I wanted to be able to trust the media, I wanted to be able to tell my mum's story sooner, but I was very aware of how disempowered I was within that structure and the fact that racism is structural means that for a lot of um, women from racialized communities or from migrant communities, the... the the barriers that you anticipate when you interact with the media or with even a service or an organisation or with the government or a government department um, means that you're going into a place already feeling disempowered, already feeling vulnerable, and then also wondering whether you're going to encounter racism on top of your experience of gender-based violence. So for me, I, I felt quite stuck in the sense that I was anticipating, and I had evidence to to believe that because I'd seen the way that the public was talking about my mum's case online and in social media, Um, I was anticipating that the response I would get if I were to share my story with the media would not be as sympathetic as the response that another person might get. And I was visibly Muslim by this point in time and wearing a hijab, and that made me even more aware of how I might be perceived and how my story might be boxed in um, by these stereotypes. And I really wanted to only begin sharing my mum's story when it came from a place of empowerment and I think that's such an important thing because we've seen with the Me Too movement how powerful it can be for survivors to have a say. We've seen that um, platforming them in terms of policy and change can actually result in better policy, can result in more safety for women and can allow us to have more intersectional responses to the issues that women face. Um, But at the time I didn't feel ready or that the circumstances or the environment that I was in was ready for my story. Um, And the last thing you want to do is have a re-traumatising encounter with the media and feel even more marginalised in in those circumstances. And I'm saying this as as someone who had the privilege of a, a great education, of working in the legal system i was a commercial litigator before all of this happened and i was familiar with courtrooms and i had the language that i needed to address a lot of the issues that i'd faced and still felt quite disempowered when it came to dealing with the media
0: you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform if you or someone you know have been affected by any of the issues that we've been covering in this interview, uh, please contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732, Safe Steps on 1800 015 188, the Men's Referral Service 1300 766 491, or Lifeline on 131114. Amani, I. I'm keen to kind of delve a little bit more into um, some of the complexities of this experience. And this is an area that, again, is, is one that is incredibly, I'm sure, it was. it's difficult to read. I'm sure it's difficult to talk about. But obviously the person who has perpetuated this, this crime is your father, and one of the things that you really do try to examine is um, how you you think and feel about his actions. And I think you take this very, um, you know, this view that really does try to look at the actions in in their context and to see this person for what he has done, of his self justifications the things that he he pulls around him, um, including damaging stereotypes and um, societal aggrandisement of, of men and men's um, power. Uh, these kinds of things you look at in a very stark way and it is, you know, it really does expose this idea that this person is not just, you know, one man doing this he's a part of a broader story of family violence gendered family violence that is propped up by society across cultures and across uh, all sorts of traditions Um, but then maybe an individual can use these excuses to to try to get themselves off the hook in some way can you talk about this portrayal because it can't have been an easy one to share
1: Yes, I think one of the most challenging things about the writing process was capturing all of those complexities about my father, who I thought I knew before this crime and who I trusted and felt a great sense of betrayal from. um, And basically using uh, what he had done and the things that unfolded in the trial to really examine the way in which society um, tries to uh, separate it's broader problems and it's structural problems from individual cases when, in fact, these individual cases and individual crimes are taking place within that context that you mentioned. It's really important in terms of our own progress and in terms of holding people accountable that we don't see violence as isolated incidents. And we, I think it's really important to also contextualise our advocacy and I do this with my own advocacy within those broader structural problems of how does patriarchy drive crimes like these? How does um, how, do, how do particular circumstances drive crimes like these? And how do we hold individuals accountable whilst at the same time pushing for structural change and long-lasting change for our society? So in terms of my father, I, I feel that in the writing process, I went through this, and I, I, this is reflective of how I experienced my relationship with him in real life. I matured from viewing him from the lens of a child and a girl child who is looking up to this figure and seeing them as a source of authority and a source of uh, wisdom and learning gradually uh, about my mom's relationship and learning about the grievances that my mom had and her experiences of abuse and then eventually learning through the process of reading and going through the the trial to actually name his behavior as abuse and one of the most confronting parts of my experience and one of the things that I've taken a lot of time to break down for the reader was that I gave evidence against my father having not seen him since before the murder itself so there had been a two-year wait and in that two years I'd had the opportunity to ruminate and imagine all these different outcomes and really build up a sense of anxiety about what kind of experience and what kind of encounter it would be to step into this courtroom where he was present and talk about abuse for the first time when I'd never confronted that with him or um, even labelled my mother's experiences as abuse until um, that moment. So that was a really heightened and emotional Experience And what perhaps shocked me the most was that I had a lot of preconceptions about what remorse should look like and what kind of behavior I would expect from him and ended up uh, being quite confronted and challenged um, by what I actually witnessed in the courtroom. And then building on that, I had to come to a place of acceptance that perhaps it's not this individual who holds the key to, um, you know, answering all my questions or holds the key to my recovery. Um, Perhaps the real recovery comes from acknowledging that you can heal outside of these processes and that there are opportunities outside of the legal system to recover and to build a sense of connection with your loved ones and to um, advocate for change irrespective of what kind of legal legal outcome you receive and at that point in time I was I was really anxious about whether he would be found guilty of murder or manslaughter because he was um, pleading a partial defense and um, watching the trial unfold had this real sense of um, uh, anticipation with it as well and I remember being very nervous about what the outcome would be, what it would mean, whether it would offer us any kind of closure, um, and going through all those different emotions. And the writing process actually allowed me to put some of those emotions to bed and to also creatively explore um, these narratives that men use when they commit crimes against women um, to, to try and justify or reason through their violence. And um, that, that was quite an empowering thing.
0: Yeah, and you reveal quite a lot in the court case itself that you have touched on in other sections of the book, and I won't, I won't say too much more because it is quite powerful revelations. That it's almost as though you're going through. Um, well, it is exactly <laughs> as though you've gone through things that you experienced and heard, and suddenly realise their significance now. Um, and that is such. It's one of those things of this horrible. Um, you know, I guess, version of suddenly realizing your parents' uh, humanity of seeing what has gone on by, you know, the things that have happened. But also you talk earlier in the book about how your own marriage really suddenly gave you an insight into the dysfunction in your parents' marriage, that you, you know, you could see that each of these steps that you've taken gave you a better perspective on, on things that were going on that you you couldn't see before because you were too close or you were a child. It really,
1: exactly. It is like a fish in water and you you don't learn to analyse your environment or to even critique your parents' behaviour until you have some lived experience of your own and some... Uh, something to compare it to and I did um, growing up see my parents' relationship as one of incompatibility and unhappiness but not as one of abuse and I and I do think as well um, one of the contributing factors to that is that we don't really empower young people to be able to identify unhealthy relationships and we live in a society where quite unhealthy behaviours are, are normalised, controlling behaviours are normalised and um, media portrayals or popular culture portrayals of love are sometimes incredibly problematic and give us this impression that some really concerning behaviors are actually um, signs of affection and that, that couldn't be further from the truth.
0: That is something that I think your book really very, um, very much drives home. Is this this dawning realization that what had gone under the cover as um, as maybe a fractious relationship or one where there was you know um, maybe things that didn't quite work in it. You suddenly realize the extent of it and how how I guess uh, this kind of coercive control or undermining or gaslighting works, and you know how devastating and the ultimate um, way it can horribly end. I think this kind of does lead with to uh, a lot of conversations about the um, the impending coercive control laws that are likely to be on the books soon and what that means. And I'm wondering, Amani, like, Especially given some of the the discussions in this conversation in your book about the nature of how um, of how the criminal justice system works or, or its failings, um, about the the cultural sensitivities as, as well around the fact that there are many people who have had you know awful system awful experiences um, based on racism and um, profiling that's wrong, both by the media and by by law enforcement, do you feel as though those laws will be necessarily addressing some of the things that we're seeing now? Or do you think that there needs to be other fixes and other considerations as well? Or, you know, instead of... I'm
1: definitely... Yeah. I'm definitely person and through my advocacy and through my writing, I think this is something that I try to convey. I don't believe in one-size-fits-all responses. And I think sometimes our impression of justice or we we look at one advocate, we hear what they're saying, and we, we believe that to be an all-encompassing solution um, because it, it, it's nice to hear that. But I think it can be incredibly dangerous to believe that we can um, respond to issues as complex as this um, with just legal solutions or just legal avenues. And in terms of um, representing the views of migrant women, for example, in the recent conversations that have taken place, there are lots of uh, reservations about whether the proposed laws will be um, overall beneficial, or overall, um, you know, potentially useless, or perhaps even damaging for some families. So, some of the issues that come up are a lack of distrust when it comes to the police, and a lack of um, desire to to pursue legal proceedings if you're already feeling traumatised and you don't want to inca- encounter um, your abuser again. Um, there are also issues in relation to women who are on temporary visas who are particularly susceptible to violence because um, they can have their visa status used against them and um, have a lot of uh, uncertainty in terms of their financial circumstances, their ability to access support and face a lot of barriers with language and things like that. So taking into account all of these different intersecting factors. Um, I think it's important that we don't focus on single solutions. I think it's, import- it's important to have a holistic approach to um, women's safety and also to link it to women's health outcomes. Um, I'm on the board at the Bankstown Women's Health Centre and one of the things that is really I've really learned to value is not just responding in crisis, but also providing women with a way to heal from these experiences and to tell their stories afterwards should they wish to do so. So, you know, in a variety of formats. And for some women, justice can look like getting into the courtroom and confronting the situation and seeking an outcome. And I know that was quite valuable for for me in my own experience. And for other women, that's the furthest away from, from their definition of justice. And what they need might be a very different approach. Um, and that's OK, too. And I don't think we should be putting any kind of burden on um, victims of violence to to resolve these issues, and I don't think we're going to have a really complete or comprehensive response unless we address some of the structural barriers that um, migrant women and um, Indigenous women are trying to bring into the conversation. So for me, it's about having that nuance and about representing those various perspectives and not prioritising one particular form of victimhood over another.
0: This is a book about a woman of incredible resilience. You learned um, behaviour from other women who have been incredibly resilient, um, but also, you know, one where you have kind of found a way to make um, what has happened meaningful for you or or translate it into something meaningful for you and for society, your advocacy, your work, but also your connection with your own belief and religion. Can you just touch on that briefly?
1: Yeah, I think we talk a lot about resilience, but we don't always talk about how people access resilience or do it. And sometimes it sounds like something that is quite abstract or intuitive when it can actually involve taking steps and learning things. So for me, um, tapping into things that I inherited from my grandmother and my mother, including my um, sense of faith, including some of my spiritual practices um, and tapping into craft, doing things with your hands, nurturing activities has been so important in my healing process. And I describe kind of keeping objects and um, interacting with them and, you know, I've, I've done things through my creative process that really reflect that. So I've um, painted about my mum and my grandmother. I've used material that I um, salvaged from my mum's home, including her old hijabs and jewellery to, to make art and to build uh, her memory into my creative practice and I think that can be an incredible form of resilience and... I, At the same time, I'm mindful of the fact that we we can't be resilient on our own. We do need to rebuild connections with others. We do need to live in a space that offers, our, offers us um, space for healing, you know, women's only safe spaces, trauma-informed spaces, and opportunities to tell stories. And for me, the most healing part of my experience has been to be able to have a say, to be able to um, contribute to meaningful dialogue and to... Uh, learn from other women and um, access mentoring and uh, conversations with other advocates that give me a great deal of sense um, of hope for for the future. So I think resilience is a combination of all of those things and above all it's it's about keeping my mum and my grandmother's memory alive in a way that I can um, tap into and connect with whenever I need to.
0: Amani, that is all we have time for today. I'd like to thank you so much for joining me to talk about your book, your extraordinary experience in life and, you know, and the resilience that you so clearly demonstrate. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
0: That was Amani Haydar uh, who joined me today to talk about her incredibly powerful and com- confronting book, The Mother Wound, out now through Hachette. If you or someone you know uh, have been affected by any of the issues we covered in this interview, please contact 1-800-RESPECT on one eight hundred seven three seven seven three two, 737 732 safe steps on one 800 15 the men's referral service on one three hundred seven six six four nine one, 766 491 or lifeline on one three. 1114. Independently yours, Triple R.
1: 102.7.
0: Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.